Well, hey, everyone. Welcome, 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 Menlo Church. So glad that you are here with us today. Hope your weekend has already been going amazing, getting some sun outside. And a special welcome if you're joining us from one of our campuses, Saratoga, Mountain View, San Mateo, Menlo Park, or you're joining us online, welcome. We had such a great time celebrating Easter together last week. And if you're new and you had a great time and you came back or you logged back on, thank you. We really do consider that a gift of trust that you would extend to us. Now, before we dive in today, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance uh, to read an update that I sent out late this week uh, about our central staffing team as a church. If you don't know this, we're one church in multiple locations, and so we have staff at each one of those locations, and then we have a central staff that serves all of them. Um, and I gave kind of an update view f- for that regarding our central team. If you didn't get that email and you'd like more detail after I talk, you can find it at our uh, info central desk. You can ask for them to uh, add you to that mailing list. Or if you're watching online, you can ask for it in the chat. Um, but my hope is that kind of you would know what we're doing and why we're doing it. In the email, I celebrated what a great Easter we got to celebrate together last week and the amazing growth that we're seeing all around Menlo Church at all of our campuses. Uh, our year-over-year attendance growth is amazing. We're super thankful for that. Um, but also recognizing that we have a giving shortfall that we need to address. And one of the ways that we've done that is uh, reorganization of our central staff team and right-sizing it for a post-COVID church. And so uh, it brings with it some really difficult goodbyes on our central staff and a need for our staff to do less of the individual task work and more equipping you, volunteers, to do the work of the ministry. If you're a follower of Jesus and that sounds familiar, it's because it's a Bible passage. We're supposed to do it that way and helping people find and follow Jesus together. And if you're investing and involved here at Menlo, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, You are what made this change possible. And if you aren't and you call Menlo home, I just would say, can I challenge you uh, to find a place to serve and to develop maybe a prayed up plan to financially support God's work here? We could really use you. Now, we are really trying to tackle these things as big as the challenges sometimes are head on and directly. And so hopefully you appreciate that. But this is not a pressure sell. I'm not trying to do anything that makes you really feel bad right now. I'm trying to make you understand that there's an invitation for a greater involvement, that you would uh, really see yourself as a member, a part of this community, supporting and involved um, in ways that maybe you haven't been or haven't been in a long time. Now, before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And this heartbeat of being for the bay, some of you, you're going to get it instantly. And some of you, you're going to instantly have some skepticism. And so I can't change your heart, but I believe God can. So let's pray right now that he might do that for all of us. God, thank you. Thank you that no matter what each and every one of us are bringing into the room right now, uh, God, you are here. And you can speak to our hearts. You can reshape our priorities. And I pray that you would. I pray that, God, where there are hearts of stone, you would turn them into hearts of flesh. God, where we have hard edges that have turned into bitterness and cynicism and pessimism, God, that you would soften those by your power and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, uh, we are beginning this new series called For the Bay. And the reason that we're doing this series is because maybe you knew this, church, kind of capital C, the church in the world, especially in the West, is unfortunately far too often known more for what we are against than what we are for. 
And, you know, we're in a culture where it is so tempting to try and just cancel everyone you disagree with, everything you're opposed to. But that's not actually our calling. As a matter of fact, if you're a follower of Jesus or you're thinking about becoming one, then you are pursuing a God who is for the Bay Area and beyond in ways that are so much bigger than we could imagine. At the core of our pursuit of God is his pursuit of us. And that's what being for the Bay is all about. Last week, after our Easter services, uh, I took a red-eye flight back to Ohio. And if you're like, that sounds not fun, um, you're correct. It was not. Uh, But I was uh, helping my family and beginning to settle my mom's affairs and helping to perform a memorial service after she suddenly passed away a few weeks ago. And it was really heavy. It was a really hard week on a bunch of levels, but uh, it presented some unique opportunities too. I connected with childhood friends and family members and uh, people who knew my mom. I got to see how she had loved them well, even into her later years. And I got a chance to lead with love and belonging, like we talked about last week, even with people who I felt like I had very few things in common with. Honestly, it feels like kind of the high school reunion type of moment, you know what I'm saying? Where you look around and you're like, do I look as old as you do, you know? <laughs> you're not supposed to laugh when I say it, okay? I just want you to... But the thing is, um, you can connect with people because there's this shared experience and they're willing to open up really quickly and invite you into the truest and often most difficult parts of their story. But the central question that we should all be asking in moments like that, the central question that we should regularly be asking in our lives as we relate to people who are like us and who are not like us, who like us and who do not like us is this, what does love require of you? That question is central to what it means to be for the bay. Jesus posed this question on several occasions, uh, but it wasn't just with his followers. He would even bring this up with spiritual leaders of the Jewish faith. And we're going to see one of those interactions here in just a second. And there are these three important contrasts that we see as Jesus brings this up. And the first one is curiosity versus animosity, curiosity versus animosity. See, in this moment, Jesus has been getting peppered with questions by the religious leaders and a scribe overhears this debate and he dropped in his question. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Now, we can all usually figure out when someone is asking something from a place of genuine curiosity, they want to know you, they want to know what you think, versus people who maybe have this underlying animosity. They're trying to trap you. They're trying to trick you. And Jesus experienced lots of that from religious leaders, including in this exchange right here. But this scribe is different. See, the religious leaders, they had agendas They had theological perspectives that they brought to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and to Jesus. They were so committed to the narratives, to the ideas, to the cultural pressures that they believed and had conformed to, that they actually would even change their theology to maintain their preferences and previous knowledge. Good thing we don't have to deal with that, huh? Now, this is everywhere in our moment, right? We know that especially if our core framework comes from a place of politics, power, or prestige, sort of the gods of our moment. 
even without realizing it, we will shift how we think about our pursuit of Jesus to maintain what matters most to us, even if that thing that matters most to us is not the thing that God is calling us to. But this scribe held a unique position, probably also a religious leader, but scribes were a unique category 2,000 years ago because of their education and intellect. They were uh, in many ways responsible for the copying and the text of scripture and their precision and care tell us everything about the vision that they had for accuracy and making sure they understood who God really was. As a matter of fact, there was this thing that they did. There's a name for God that we translate in the Old Testament of our Bibles, Lord, in all caps, but you'll see them in lowercase. That word in Hebrew, which is the language that the Old Testament was originally written in, is the word Yahweh. And that word is really important. It's the name that God gave Israel to show he was in a permanent covenant relationship with them. And out of respect, it was this really common practice for this group of scribes as they got up to that word, regardless of how many times that word showed up in a sentence or in a paragraph or in a page, every time they would get up to that word, they would set the pen they were down using, they would go ceremonially cleanse their hands, they would pick up a different pen, a pen dedicated to the word Yahweh, write it out and then switch back every single time. They were committed to accuracy. And the question that this scribe asked Jesus, the question that for this religious leader came from a genuine place, right? Which commandment is the most important? It was a common question. Lots of rabbis or teachers of the law had to answer it. And you needed to give your answer because of the volume of the law that existed. If you didn't know this, you didn't know the center of gravity for how that particular teacher thought about the law. Now in California, I've only been here for a few months, I'm learning that we basically have countless laws and regulations. Like, I countless, right? And I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm simply saying that beyond a certain point, you actually can't follow them all. Like, there's too many of them. And that's exactly the spot that the Jews found themselves in. They had added some. They had interpreted some more. See, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there are 613 commandments And eventually, Jewish leaders made something called the Mishnah, or what is translated the fence, which were rules and ideas around them that added even more. As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments that we think about, they were sort of like the table of contents for these 613 commandments. Now, if you're wondering, why did they get to that number 613? If you take the Ten Commandments, there are 613 characters in the Ten Commandments. And so they took all of those and then found commandments to match them. Use that over lunch. Have fun with that, right? Some of you, you've wondered what your relationship is to 613 commandments. As a Christian, you're like, there's a lot of stuff about food. Am I supposed to follow that? There's some stuff about corporal punishment. And obviously the answer is you have to follow all of them exactly. And if you haven't been, I'm really mad at you. So is God. Just kidding. That's not how it works. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend just a minute and give you a framework of how to understand your relationship to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law has typically been broken up into three categories. There's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil law was to regulate the nation of Israel and isn't applicable to us at all. 
The ceremonial law provided the path to cleanliness for sacrifices and temple participation. That is also not applicable to you at all. The moral law highlighted in the Ten Commandments is very relevant to us. Not as a means of getting to God or earning our way or trying to maintain perfection with him as the Jewish people understood it. But instead, it provides a reminder of two things, how we fall short in our own effort and why we need Jesus, and this direction of obedience and formation as we grow in our relationship to Jesus. In other words, we use the moral law not to get to God, but we allow it to inform our pursuit of God since he got to us and he died to restore the relationship that we broke individually and collectively through our sin and disobedience. So this scribe is asking, which is really extremely important, the most important in the midst of this landscape of commandments. And Jesus surfaces the second tension of priority versus authority. Priority versus authority. We can have lots of things that are true, but eventually something will bubble to the top. Have you ever been in an emergency situation that like, as I even asked that question, maybe years and years ago, you can think about something. It was a, a car accident, a health scare, a surprise project at school or work, and it kind of scrambled everything else in your life. Just a few weeks ago when I'm coming through airport security and I get a phone call that my mom's passed away, everything else in my life instantly crystallized what needed to happen when. I didn't have to intentionally think about it. All the other stuff became a blur and the stuff that I had to do became primary and the stuff that I could delay or delegate got pushed to the back. Have you ever had that happen? It wasn't that the other things weren't necessary. It wasn't that they weren't important. They absolutely were. They just weren't the most important. And that's exactly how Jesus answers the question in the passage. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second one is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus, he responds by sharing something that you've probably heard before. It's called the Shema. And for the Jewish people, they actually had this as a core part of their life. It flows from a book in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It's so important that God had them put it on their doorframe, carry it with them, recite it a couple times a day. This was a really big deal. It was such a big deal because the Jewish people were rarely in cultures that believed in their God. And so it, it, if they didn't do this intentionally, if they didn't remind themselves who their God was and that it would take their full devotion to stay devoted, it might've all been true, but it wouldn't have been their priority. They usually lived in polytheistic cultures that believed in a plethora of deities and they were constantly being tempted to just add a little bit of the cultural deities to their faith formation to make it compatible over time with the same ideas. Doesn't that sound crazy? Good thing we don't have to deal with that. See, the way Jesus calls us to be fully devoted with everything to God is actually impossible without God. And that's his point. We can't do it ourselves. It requires God's presence, which is precisely why Jesus was there. Even the pursuit of this shows us that. Without grace, what can you and I possibly do? We all fall short, wouldn't you? 
Haven't you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, really? See, in the Hebrew mind, the heart is the most important part about you. It's your identity. It's who you are at your core. And in a culture that says your identity can be your idolatry, your identity is the thing that uniquely is yours, no one can challenge or do anything with, the very core of the Shema is that God would have your identity, that you would worship him with all of it. But how often am I on cruise control? doing what seems good enough, but I haven't been with God enough to even know the difference. How about with all your soul, this eternal component of your being? Or as the Jewish understanding would have been, this is where your emotions derived. See, we live in a culture that either says, you and I should, we should take our soul, these emotions, they should find their purpose in a new age self-help smorgasbord, just go anywhere, anytime, Or what we can do is we can turn off our emotions entirely that we might produce even more and be more efficient. But here Jesus is reminding them and telling you and me that God gets that too. See, our mind, don't even get me started on this one. Our mind really for the Jewish thought was about their decision-making ability. And for us, we think about that, but we also think about what goes into our minds. I'm being tempted every day. You're being tempted every day to dumb down our pursuit of God with our minds. We have entire industries that are just built for you and me to be more and more distracted with more and more noise that we might miss the point. See, finally, there's our strength. It's being sapped over and over again by a pace of life that we all know we're not designed to live in. Our sinful flesh and the enemy of our souls just hopes that if we get so busy, we won't notice that our priorities have shifted. It's an old preacher line that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And he's done that for a lot of us. If you haven't read the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and any of this is kind of tracking with you and you're going, yeah, this is relevant. I need to think about this in my life. I would really encourage you to check it out. And I know what you're thinking, Phil. Uh, I thought the name of this series was For the Bay. Are you going to like get back to that at some point? And I am, I am. But the thing is, the reason that we are for the bay is to do what we just read about. Because Jesus points something out. Has anyone ever asked, or you, have you ever asked someone a question, they've answered the question, but then they keep answering other questions or they keep going even though you didn't tell them to? That's kind of what we see Jesus do with the scribe. He's answering this kind of second question, sort of. He says that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But the line just before it and how he talks about this and the line just after it sort of makes it seem like Jesus is tying these two things together. It's like 1A and 1B. See, keep in mind that even though Jesus is answering the scribe here who seems to be genuinely seeking, there are religious leaders who have used the law their entire ministry life to avoid loving people. And Jesus is now saying that the way we love God is in how we love people. They're connected. See, the emergence of a culture that wanted nothing to do with God, it it didn't just need the authority of scriptures to be confirmed. They had that. They believed that. 
As a matter of fact, in the Pharisees' thinking, all 613 of these rules were to be maintained perfectly. In the Sadducees, they thought about it with the first five books, but the, the religious leaders of the day, they really believed even what Jesus was saying. They just found ways to explain away applying it. They needed the priority for how to apply it, that it was loving God by loving people. See, being for the bay, it, it means that we have to examine how we are loving people, even people we don't naturally like or those who don't like us, even Democrats, <laughs> even Republicans, even atheists, even the people who work at Google, even the people who work at Apple or Meta or OpenAI or Stanford, right? They are all our neighbors. See, there's this fun line in culture that doesn't really get used anymore, but it's a fun line. It's kind of funny. And it's this idea that when you need a break or you want to splurge on you, you're supposed to treat yourself. That's the idea, right? You've got to just do this thing that you wouldn't normally do. And we all kind of know what we would do. We all have an idea of what we would do. And Jesus is saying we should treat others the way we would treat yourself. That's what Jesus is actually saying. And I would just wonder, like, how's that going for you? Are you getting the best and other people in your life are just getting what's left? I did student ministry for a lot of years. And you learn in student ministry when someone calls the church office and they say, hey, oh, I just love what you guys are doing with the kids and I would love to bless you. And so um, we have something we'd love to donate for the church. Would you mind coming and picking it up? Pretty early you learn what that means. That means I have something that I will otherwise donate or throw out that I don't want to deal with. Would you come deal with it and make me feel better that students are using it? And to be fair, it was better than what we had. So we would go get it and bring it. But I just hope that for us, God help us, right? If we are loving our neighbors by just giving our leftovers, by giving our trash, by giving what we don't really even care about. And you should ask the question, I should ask the question, how do we detect that in our lives? How can we tell if we are really doing that or not? Which leads me to the final tension in our passage together, which is knowledge versus understanding. Knowledge versus understanding. My wife, Alyssa, and I, we uh, are very different in the way that we think about and understand school, the way we made, made it way, the way through. Alyssa is brilliant, like valedictorian smart, could get A's without even studying. Aren't those people annoying? I need you to give me a little bit more than that. Just... And for me, uh, school was really hard. I had a reading disability, learning disability, dyslexia. I struggled through to make it through. But there was something that I noticed that God had given me when I was young. Things took much longer for me to learn, but once I learned them, I never forgot them. And beyond that, while the school smart stuff didn't really hit me the same way, the street smart stuff was kind of built in. Reading people and situations was very easy for me. And the good news is that we need both kinds of people. We need all of it. And this kind of balance we see show up in our final few verses today. It says, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Jesus did this like Jedi mind trick on the scribe and the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, we're going to dip out. We'll come see you tomorrow. We got to regroup, you know? See, remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are agents with an agenda in Judaism. They are trying to trick Jesus up. They are trying to catch him. And they're within earshot of this conversation with the scribe who basically says, hey, you know what? I've been doing this my entire life. I know the text better than just about anybody. I've asked lots of rabbis their take on this exact question. And Jesus, I totally agree with you. I have no pushback, no feedback, no notes. That was huge. Maybe this is the point where we would expect Jesus would high five his disciples and be like, another one, you know, like, but that's not what he does. Jesus sees his wisdom and he responds. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What he's saying is you are close, but not quite there. That's what Jesus is saying. See, I think Jesus is pointing out the difference between knowledge and understanding. There are two words in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament of your Bible was originally written in that I think surface here. One of those words is the word gnosko. And that word is all about how you and I understand concepts at an intellectual level. We would say, I agree. And I think for us as Christians, it is very easy for us to settle for a level of our faith that is a gnosko, I agree kind of faith. And I think that's what the scribe did. But there's a second kind of knowing in the New Testament that we see, and that comes from the word gnosis. And this isn't just, I agree. This is, I have come to agree. I believe through experience. And it carries a very different weight in our lives. Not only do we know it's, do we know it's true in our head, we know it's true with our life. If I told you, I believe that this stool can hold my weight, but I've never sat on it, you would go, well, do you really believe it? And then if I said, I believe that this stool can hold my weight and sit on it, all of a sudden you go, oh, he really does believe it. And it would be really embarrassing if this stool broke apart underneath me <laughs> right now. See, I think Jesus was excited that the scribe was close, but also simultaneously calling him closer to go from gnosko faith to gnosis faith. That's when we really love God and really love others. I wonder, where is your faith right now? What does putting your weight on what you say you believe look like? See, that's what loving the bay is all about. Not just saying it, but doing it. And doing it because, not it's just a good idea, but because it's how we show we really love God. By loving people. By asking this question. What does love require of you? See, this is way simpler than 613 commandments, but it's way more demanding. The reason it's more demanding is because there's no loopholes. The religious leaders with 613 rules, they were always looking for loopholes. And the biggest loophole that they tried to work with Jesus was, who is my neighbor? That was always the question they wanted to know. And the religious leaders, they weren't asking this question so they knew who they got to love. They were asking this so they could find out who they didn't have to love. The group of people that they could hate or maybe just tolerate that Jesus was okay with. And in case you're wondering, who is my neighbor? The answer to who is your neighbor is as you think about the people that you might exclude, groups, 
or individuals, those people are definitely your neighbor. Anyone created in the image of God with infinite dignity, value, and worth, they are your neighbor. There are no loopholes. That's Jesus' point. But what if they don't believe, Phil? Well, we lead with love and belonging, and we trust God to move. Somebody came up to me around a specific issue in their life after the last service, and they said, I just don't know if I can love this person because they don't believe this same thing that I do over here. And I'm just saying, it's a really good thing that God does not put those kind of barriers on you and me before he extends love to us. We love and we lead with belonging and we let God change hearts. Now, there's a tension with how we love people and how we can be for the bay that I wanna kind of show you and talk you through. And that's really, I think, kind of what tolerance has become in our culture. Here's what tolerance used to mean. And in dictionaries, you'll still find that it means something like treating someone that I disagree with the way I want to be treated. That sounds great, right? We get, we're on board. But here's what tolerance has become in our culture. Tolerance is now simultaneously affirming endlessly conflicting worldviews. That's what tolerance is now. Tolerance means that I have to agree with everything that someone else says, even if they contradict someone else that has something else to say, I have to agree with that. It does not make any sense at all. The new version of tolerance isn't tolerance. It's either lying or being lazy and usually probably a combination of both so that we don't get canceled, right? But we are going to confound the world just like Jesus did if we extend his conviction and his compassion. And that's exactly what we want to do, to love huge. We have a couple tools that we hope will help you through this series. The first one is the neighboring card that you receive when you walked into one of our campuses. Everyone is your neighbor, but your neighbors are definitely your neighbors. <laughs> and loving them starts with knowing them. So I would just encourage you to use this tool. Maybe put it up on your fridge. Pray for them. Treat them like you would treat yourself. Remember, think about that in the weeks to come. And for some of you, you know all of your neighbors. You'll be able to do this right now while you're sitting here. For some of you, you don't know all of your neighbors. And some of you, you have lived at your house an embarrassing amount of time to not know all of your neighbors. Let me just give you the line. Hey, so-and-so, hey man, I am so sorry. I am terrible with names. Would you do me a favor? Would you remind me of your name? And then just write it down. Put it on your fridge, start praying for them. Start looking for ways to serve them. You may be shocked by what God could do. And the second is a special For the Bay transfer sticker that you can put on and just the words For the Bay uh, will stick onto maybe a car or a water bottle, your laptop. And it can be a faith conversation starter because somebody's going to ask you, they're going to say, what does that sticker mean? And you get to answer simply, oh man, thanks so much for asking. My church and our community is trying to genuinely care for our community. We think God's for the Bay and we want to be too. Just see what God does. So as we continue in this series, take advantage of those tools and think about the priority of what Jesus is saying. Are you willing to love like this, to prioritize this kind of care? Look, you still need personal boundaries. You still need limits. But lots of us, we have overcorrected in the limit side and undercorrected on the love side. And it's time to play the long game, to lead with belonging and love and trust that God can work. Can I pray for you, Menlo? God, thank you so much. Thank you for this incredible hope that we have in you. 
for the chance that we get, even right now in our life and story and situation, to submit and surrender our lives in this area to you. People, God, that maybe for whatever reason, an individual or a type of person or a group of people that we've just decided we don't really have to love. God, would you remind us how much you love them? Would you give us the same love that you have for them, that we might extend that to them? God, as we sing to you, would you remind us just how much you love and extend grace to us? Never let us become those Pharisees, God, that think we have performed our way into a relationship with you. Remind us, remind us, remind us. And for those that are exploring faith today, God, would you show them just how deep your love and care for them is? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.